You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Good morning, everyone. Please turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3 by way of introduction. I've been here before, uh, but this is my second time. My name is Barry. I'm one of the Bethel Bible pastors. I'm the associate out at Henderson, and it's my privilege to give Pastor Clint a much-needed break this morning and to be your tour guide through the Scriptures, which is one of the greatest joys of my life. So Bethel Bible churches are currently going verse by verse through the book of Colossians. We're in chapter 3, verses 12 through 17 this morning. And I'll begin by reading that passage now, beginning in verse 12, Colossians 3, Paul is writing, Put on then, he says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful that the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And let's have a word of prayer before we continue. Sir, we thank you for the opportunity to continue worshiping you now through the study of your living word. And so we come before your word with reverence and awe and expectation. And that's the expectation of hearing personally from you as your word is taught and received. And that this would be through the power and person and ministry of your Holy Spirit. And for this, we give thanks in advance through the precious name, priceless name, matchless name, of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Redeemer, our Hero, our Champion, and our Friend. And all those in agreement said, Amen. Amen. Well, last week we ended our study, the Bethel Bible Churches as a whole, ended our study with a look in Colossians at how in the true church, and I mean the capital C church, true Christianity, that there is no Jew nor Greek, there is no circumcised or uncircumcised, there is no barbarian or Scythian, and there is no slave or free. In fact, what Paul said is that these distinctions have been utterly abolished among us, and we are all one in Christ. And as we move on now in chapter 3, today we'll see how we are to react and live regarding this beautiful truth. And as we'll see, it has everything, everything to do with how we live out relationships with one another. Now on a teaching note, as I am a guest speaker kind of jumping in here, I'll give you my overall take on the book of Colossians. My view of Colossians is that the Colossae, the church at Colossae is by and large a solid wonderful church. And for that reason, it seems to me that the apostle sets his bar of expectations for this church high. And in my view, as best I can tell, it's the highest bar he sets anywhere in his letters. I think the church at Colossae is doing quite well. And so to me, the church at Colossae, I would classify as an excellent fighting unit in the war against darkness. And I believe that wholeheartedly, that the local church is nothing if not a fighting unit in the war against darkness. And the more we realize that, or the sooner we come to terms with that, the more 
quickly we're able to do what God has called us to do as a church. And so when Paul is dealing with issues here in the Colossian church, maybe pointing out a heresy or a fallacy or a dangerous direction, I believe that he's dealing with issues not so much because the Colossian believers are falling into heresy or into error, but simply as a reminder to them and to us that evil will never sleep, it will never stop, and it will never give up. The battle never ends, so stay on guard. The darkness is always looking for a chink in the armor. It's always looking for a way in. It's always looking to get a foot in the door. And so no matter how strong our church may be, no matter how wonderful our pastor may be, such as Epaphras for the church at Colossae, we have always got to be on guard. Now, regarding a fighting unit, one of the best ways to destroy a fighting unit is through the issue of disunity. And today we look at important ways to keep the unity within the church, within our fighting unit. And as we do so, here's the interesting thing. Bear in mind that we're looking at peoples and or groups who comprise the church at Colossae, groups from all over. These are groups and or people who often carried deep-seated and ancient uh, issues or even hatreds with one another. That's what the church at Colossae is made up of, people that would normally be at one another's throats. However, they have been made one in Christ. So that brings up a natural question here. How can such deep-seated animosities be overcome by God's people? And the answer to that is through consecrated attitudes in, in our relationships with one another. And again, a good point for me to point out what I call the two-sided coin of consecration and sanctification. Consecration being our human side. So consecration to me is just an idea where we set ourselves apart solely for the purpose of the Lord, to be used by him. It is the attitude that says, maybe of Isaiah, where he said, here am I, Lord, send me. That's the idea. Here am I, Lord, use me. Here am I, Lord, teach me. Here am I, Lord, send me. Or here am I, Lord, command me. My life is yours. This area of my life is yours, etc. That's consecration. And when we offer that part of our lives or a part of our lives or our lives to the Lord, then the Holy Spirit takes that and does the work of sanctification, which is he molds the beautiful likeness of Christ in us in that area of our lives. So how can such deep-seated animosities be overcome by God's people? through consecrated attitudes in our relationships with one another. Right into the text we go, verse 12a. Paul writes, Put on then, followers of Christ, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Now, the way the ESV renders this is a little torturous to me. And as a writer and a reader, I like to rearrange this a little bit for ease of understanding and ease of teaching. A first note is that the Greek word translated then in our ESV is, is our old friend un, which much of the time is translated as a therefore. So I would kind of rewrite this as follows. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts. Now, as you know, this is a Bible church, and as Bible church people know, whenever there's a therefore in Scripture, we want to find out what the therefore is. Therefore, exactly. And what it does is it links what's coming in the scriptures with what is just passed. And what is just passed was Paul's beautiful treatise on how we've been made new in Christ. And so knowing that idea, what came before and what's coming, lays this idea at our feet. In essence, saying this, since this is true, that's what the therefore is, the un, since this is true, 
Act accordingly, for you are a new creation. And now we're going to see how to act accordingly. Paul then points out to the Colossian believers that they are God's chosen ones or his elect. Now, without getting into all the theology of election and predestination, to me, I like to keep it simple at this point and say it's always so wonderful to be reminded by Scripture that we have been chosen by God himself. All the other theology aside, how wonderful it is to be reminded that the God of the universe chose this, this nothing to receive his grace, chose you to receive his grace when he did not have to. And so above all, this idea of election, this idea of being chosen by God should keep us, hum keep us humble, not make us arrogant, since it never lets us stray far from the fact that salvation is an act of grace completely. Salvation is something thought of by God. It's something initiated by God. And it's something completed by God. It has nothing to do with our merit, yours or mine. We do not deserve it. And knowing that wonderful truth should have an effect upon our lives. And as Paul says, therefore, we should be holy and know that we are deeply loved. Holy and deeply loved or dearly loved or beloved is what he said. So we should be holy. Again, this isn't that hard to, to understand. It's just that concept of being set apart ones, his consecrated ones. For instance, as, as I mentioned last time in the first time I taught here on Colossians, is we have, we have our holy furniture. We have our sacred silverware and china at the house that we use when, when someone special like Pastor Clint comes over. We break out the good stuff. Normally, in my house, we eat off pressed plastic and paper and whatever we can find. But when the important people come over, then we break out what we call the consecrated stuff. That's the idea of just setting ourselves aside for God's use in this life. That's, only, that's the idea of holiness and consecration. And then this idea of election reminds us how deeply we're loved. You see, what God did for us through the plan of redemption culminating in the power and majesty, but, but pain and suffering of the cross, he did not have to do. Rather, he did it because he wanted to do it for us, and that love for us was costly beyond measure. So holy and beloved is who we are. Understanding all of this, we now get to the heart of the matter. We are to put on, as Paul writes it, various attitudes, or I might put it like this. We are to dress ourselves with certain heart clothing. And the first of these is to put on compassionate hearts. So what's a compassionate heart? Well, a compassionate heart in our vernacular is a heart that goes out to someone in need. Oh, my heart really went out to him. My heart really went out to her. That's a compassionate heart. It goes out to someone in need. What's a compassionate heart? It's a heart that hurts when someone else hurts. This brings to us the ideas of sympathy and empathy. Sympathy is hurting uh, feeling sorry for someone when they hurt. Empathy is a little bit deeper. It means you hurt with the same hurt that they hurt. And a compassionate heart carries both of those ideas with it. What is a compassionate heart? A heart that is moved to action by someone else's need, like God's heart was moved for us. That's the entire story of the plan of redemption. That is the story of a compassionate heart. And what a blessing a church full of these hearts is. If we clothe ourselves with that inner garment of compassionate hearts, what a blessing a church like that is. But Paul doesn't stop at putting on compassionate hearts like any good Ronco commercial. There's more. We move on to verse 12b where he says, put on kindness. 
putting on kindness. The idea of kindness is so vitally important for the welfare of a church. Because it means that we deal gently with others when we can deal harshly with them. But we do so. We deal gently and not harshly with others in the church because we understand that we share their frailties. I have my weaknesses. You have yours. They're often not the same weakness, but yet we still all have this in common. We are sinful. We are frail. We are broken. We are imperfect. And so we're made of the same weak stuff as one another, and therefore we're able to deal kindly with one another. Kindness, by the way, is often found the most in those who understand grace the best. This is why, and I'll, and I'll come back to this a little bit later in the message this morning, but why I believe the Apostle Paul's writing on grace is better than anyone else who writes on grace, because when the Lord saved him, he was persecuting the church. He was putting people to death and putting people in prison. He was the church's worst enemy, and the Lord saved him. And so he understood the grace of God. He understood his own frailings and uh, frailties and failings. And so he was able to deal kindly with others. But it doesn't stop at kindness. Again, there's more. We will move on to verse 12c, where Paul says, put on humility. A church simply cannot continue to exist if its people aren't humble. And humility is a simple idea. It's where you consider someone else as being more important than you and therefore sincerely treat them as if they're more important than you are. By the way, this is the entirety of Jesus' ministry in virtually one word, his humility. And now we move on to one of my favorite heart attitudes, verse 12d. Paul says, put on meekness. Now, as English speakers, we tend to confuse the ideas of weakness and meekness because they sound so much alike, but they could not be different, more different. Uh, well, they're very different. So let's get into that. The, the true definition of meekness is to use your strength to serve another and not to lord it over them or demand that they serve you. It is to, to submit your strength to another or to an ideal. And I have a great example of this going back 30 years in my life. I'm 60 now. I turned 30 30 years ago. That's my math, California public school math. It's still hanging in there. 30 years ago, I had my, I decided I was going to throw a big birthday party for myself. So I did. I threw a 30th birthday party outside at the little place that I had, Acre Land in Fallbrook, California. And we had all kinds of outdoor activities. One of And then the next year, I had the second annual 30th birthday party, then the third annual birthday party, and I think I had the fourth annual 30th birthday party before it petered out. I remember one time, one of the gals came up to me, I think it was the second annual 30th birthday party, and she says, wow, I didn't know you were 32. I said, yeah, I'm, 30, I'm 32, we'll leave it, we'll leave it at that. But anyway, one of the things we offered at the 30th annual birthday party was horse rides. And my friend, the Nelson, the friends of Nelson family lived about a half mile up the road. And they had this amazing quarter horse named Skeeter. And I call her Skeeter the Wonder Horse. And on party day, Steve would saddle her up, ride her down the street and tie her up down at my place. Then when everyone showed up, there'd be horse rides for the day. Now Skeeter was, she was not a trail dog of a horse. She was a legitimate horse. She was a Jim Connor horse in her, in her younger years. And she loved to give people rides. She was, if you put a full-size adult or a teenager on her back, she's going to give you a real honest to goodness ride. In fact, you're going to have to fight her a little bit because she's going to want to head down the driveway up the street back to the Nelson's home where that cozy corral with no one needing a ride is waiting for her. However, 
You put a tiny child on her back and she would change in an instant. She would become calm and docile, gentle. And she would use all of her power and strength to make sure that child remained safe and balanced on her back. It was incredible to see. That's one of the reasons I called her Skeeter, the Wonder Horse. And that's the idea of meekness. It's power under control. It's power serving an ideal or power serving someone else. And again, regarding meekness, it is the definition of Jesus' life and ministry. He had all the power of God in human form, but yet he used it to serve us and not to be served by us. And now to the last heart attitude of verse 12. 12e we see, and put on patience. Boy, do we need this one. Amen. And why? Because although we're redeemed and all born-again people are redeemed, we're all still fallen, we're all still broken, and we're all still sinful. Every single one of us is a work in progress at the hands of the Holy Spirit. Not one of us is perfect. Not one of us is even close. And in this life, not one of us will even come close to that. So first of all, we need patience with one another because we're all fallen, broken, and sinful. Additionally, we need patience. We need to put on patience, clothe ourselves with patience, because we're all at different stages of development at the hands of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Some here have walked with God many years, even decades, and know and have experienced a great deal, while others here have walked with God but for a short time and know and have experienced little. And this latter group needs those who have walked with God for many years, even decades, to be patient with them as they learn these lessons that have been learned earlier by others. And this leads us into verse 13a, where Paul says, excuse me, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Bearing with one, or one another is a nice, polite way of saying, put up with one another, you bunch of jerks. That's, in essence, what it's saying. As we'll see shortly, we're called to love one another. But in the scriptures, and by the way, it is a command to love one another. Put out of your mind the idea that we are called to be in love with God or in love with one another or in love with your spouse. The scripture does not use that term. That's a modern term and it's false. And if you have songs that sing about being in love with the Lord, trash it. Because that's not what the scripture teaches. It is we are commanded to love God. And we'll get into why that's a command and not an ooey-gooey, mushy, gushy, emotional feeling. But we are never called, we are never called, by the way, in, that, in, that, in light of that, to like one another. Now, it's nice if we all like one another, but that's not always the case. You see, we're all fallen. Again, a reminder, we're talking a lot about how fallen we are because that's why we need to clothe ourselves with all of these things. We're all fallen, and the Lord is busy molding the capital J jerk out of all of us but guess what? It's going to take him a lifetime to do that. With me, it's going to take two lifetimes to do that. There's a lot of the capital J jerk in me. Now, because of our frailties, because of our sinfulness, and because of our imperfections, guess what? We're going to wrong one another. It's not an if, it's a when. We're going to wrong one another or let one another down. And that means I'm going to let my church down. Clint will let his church down. You will let one another down. Husbands and wives will let one another down. Parents and children will let one another down. Brother and sister in Christ will let one another down because it's what we're made of. So what do we do when someone in the church has done that to us? We must allow the Holy Spirit to train us to move in the direction 
of forgiveness for that person rather than move in the direction of demanding apology or restitution from that person. And that's the way of the sinful nature. That's the way of the world. You will come to me. You will apologize. You will make it right. That's not the attitude of Christ, and that's not the attitude of us. That's the way of the sinful nature. Okay, Barry, I get that, the whole forgiveness thing, but, but why are we to forgive others, and to what degree or how are we to do this? Well, guess what? Paul comes to our rescue in verse 13b. This is what he says. As the Lord has forgiven you. Uh-oh, I don't know if I like where this is going. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So let's look at the why of forgiveness. We are to forgive because the Lord has forgiven us. Simple end of story. We are forgiven, therefore, and we are to forgive others. What about the how or to what degree? Well, Paul says here we are to forgive the same way the Lord forgives us. Now I'm really getting scared. Because let's talk about the ways that the Lord forgives us. You see, he forgives and he forgets. And if he forgives and forgets, then guess what we're called to do? To forgive and to forget. Now, I've taught as a younger pastor, I believed it earlier in my life, that I'm called to forgive, but that I cannot forget because I'm finite and I can't. God is infinite. He can do that somehow. He can forget. He can remove our sins as far as east is from west. And I'm glad he said east is from west because if I'm going west, if I start heading west, at what point do I ever start heading east? Never. I'm always going west. However, if he said, I removed your sins as far as north is from south, we have a problem here because if I go north, at some point I'm going to start heading south. So there's a place at which north and south meet, but east and west never meet technically. So the Lord says, I've removed your sins as far as east is from west. Thank you for that. But now I'm supposed to do the same thing. But I can't. But I can't. No, it's not that I can't. It's that I don't want to. I want to remember. I want to keep myself safe from someone who's wronged me over and over again. But we are called to forgive and to forget. Can I do this in my flesh? I cannot. Can you do this in your flesh? You cannot. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can forgive and we can forget. How else does the Lord forgive us? Well, he forgives us. Not just does he forgive and forget, but he forgives over and over and over again. <laughs> yeah, we do need it. How many millions of times have I gone before the Lord asking for his forgiveness, taking advantage of 1 John 1, 8. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. And not only that, but cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, a million, two million, a billion, trillion, gazillions. What? I don't know how many words there are, but he forgives us over and over but we are to forgive others in the same way, which means when my brother and sister wrong me over and over and over again, what am I to do? What are you to do? We are to forgive them in the same way that the Lord forgives us. How else does the Lord forgive us? Well, he has forgiven us on a massive, massive scale. We, you and I, are forgiving things that are minor in comparison. A great place to go to Matthew Chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. And I'll just read this passage. It'll speak for itself. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Peter's imagined he's being real, uh, real generous with the seven there. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Some translate that as 70 times seven times. Therefore, Jesus continued, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. 
When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's more than anybody can pay in a lifetime. That's millions and millions of dollars in today's in today's uh, money, I would imagine. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him, let me find my place, to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, a few bucks, pennies. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Since his fellow servant, so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, as he had done, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So followers of Christ, let forgiveness flow and flow and flow. Now, all of these we've just studied may be considered dressing oneself with the inner garments. And now we come to that outer garment that will be the glue to all of the others. Verse 14, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Listen to Paul's great passage on love. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 8a. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Not hard at all to see how love binds everything in the church together in perfect harmony. Now, we're going to end this morning with a deeper look at the issue of love. But I want to do that through the lens of the life of John rather than through the life of Paul, who I think is the master of grace. Well, John is the master of of love. But before then, there are three more issues to cover. Let's move on into verse 15. Paul says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. The first of these three is to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, because we were called to this as one body. This is not speaking, by the way, of the peace of the individual, my peace I give to you, but rather of the peace that should naturally exist between brothers and sisters in Christ. What do I mean by that? I mean, the members of my body don't war with one another. They all work together. They all support one another. Now, I'm, I'm 60 and I'm on the downhill slide, I guess, from here. But in the younger years, when I played all the sports that I did, the surfing and the soccer and the tennis and the the the, my body, all the parts of it just worked together, and what a joy it was to, to see that happening, and that's exactly what happens in the church. You see, 
They all, all the parts of my body have different jobs to do and they work wonderfully together. My feet don't envy my hands. My elbows don't envy my eyes. It's just natural for this to occur. This is why Paul uses different language when he speaks of the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts. With the heart clothing, Paul was using command language. He's saying, put on, put on, put on, put on. But now he says, let thee, let the peace of Christ, or allow the peace of Christ. This implies that the peace of Christ is already a corporate part of us, which we would expect from members of the same body, just as if our bodies are healthy, the members don't envy one another, war against one another, but all work in harmony. And verse 15 teaches us to view one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, to see one another and to interact with one another through the supernatural peace of Christ, which is naturally ours as members of the same body, and to go out of our way to be thankful for one another as we do. And now on to the second of the three final issues for 16a. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Oh, this is a great Bible teacher passage here. The passive idea here is that the word of Christ, meaning the Bible, dwells in us richly. Now to the true believer in Christ, the word of God is the light in the darkness. To the true believer in Christ, the word of God is the food that nourishes us. To the true believer in Christ, the word of God is the water that sustains us. To the true believer in Christ, the word of God is the breath that fills our lungs. The word of God is everything to us. And why is the word of God everything to the true believer in Christ? Because simply stated, God is. And God is completely revealed to us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who in turn is perfectly revealed to us within the pages of scripture. So why is the scripture everything to us? Because it is living and alive. Why is the scripture everything to us? Because it is the source of all truth needed in order to navigate this fallen world. Why is the scripture everything to us? Because the human soul was made for the word of God and the word of God was made for the human soul. They are meant for one another. And that is my motto as a Bible teacher. I firmly believe that the human soul is crafted for the word of God and the word of God is crafted for the human soul. All we need to do is bring the two together, rightly divide the word of truth, and watch what the word of God does with the human soul. It is unbelievable to watch what a privilege it is to be a Bible church, to teach the word of God, and to be a student of the word of God. The Bible and the human soul are meant for one another. As followers of Christ, therefore, we should never be far nor long from that glorious word. We should never be far nor long from studying it. We should never be far nor long from praying it. We should never be far nor long from reflecting and meditating upon it. We should never be far nor long from applying it to our lives, to our world. We should never be far nor long from sharing it with one another and with the lost, leading us to verse 16b, Paul continues, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. When the word of Christ dwells richly in us in a corporate manner, when we are truly people of the word, oh, the beauty of what transpires when we meet together. We dwell together as we meet together upon God's infallible word, and so we grow in wisdom. But there's more, verse 16c, Paul continues singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. When the word of Christ dwells richly in us in a corporate manner, again, oh, the beauty of what transpires when we serve God together. We sing old songs to and of him, as we've done this morning. 
We write new songs to and of him this morning. I think the third song here this morning was one by Todd Wright, if I'm not a fairly new song. And we find new ways to make him the source of praise and adoration, which is the whole idea of bringing him glory. And we are deeply thankful when the word of God dwells richly in our heart. We are deeply thankful for him when the word of God dwells richly in our heart. We are deeply thankful for what he's done for us. When the word of Christ dwells richly in our heart, we are deeply thankful for who we are in his son. And when the word of Christ dwells richly in us, we are deeply thankful for our coming destiny because of him. And all of this, all of this bear in mind from a people who should be at each other's throats, but who instead have been made a glorious, impossible, unified one as we have been as well. And now to the last of the final three issues of this section, verse 17, Paul concludes, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. To do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus means so much more than slapping on an in Jesus name at the end of our prayers, and so deserves a bit of our time this morning. In the Hebrew mind of Bible times, a person's name was synonymous with their nature and character, especially when God gave you a name, such as he changed Jacob's names to Israel, Abram's name to Abraham, etc. For instance, when Jesus nicknamed John and James as the sons of thunder, he was saying that they had the same nature and character as thunder. Remember, among one of the sterling characteristics they had is they wanted to see an entire Samaritan village destroyed by fire from heaven because the Samaritans wouldn't welcome Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. They wanted to see everyone in that village put to death. So they had the same characteristics in nature as thunder. They're kind of loud, these sons of thunder, scary, boisterous, and a bit mean-spirited. So what Paul is telling us in this verse is to do everything in word and in deed according to the nature and character of Jesus. Or in other words, to act toward one another how he would act toward us with the same heart which he would act with the same heart with which he would act toward us. Tell me that if we are treating one another as Jesus would treat us for the reason, same reason that Jesus would treat us that way, that that will make a big difference in the uni in the unity of this church, make a huge difference. Now, that's our verse-by-verse -verse portion for this morning. I promised that I would end with a look on the idea of love more through the lens of the life of John than through the life of Paul. And so we've come to our final thought section, which is the transformation of John from a son of thunder to the beloved. So at the end of his life, so John is the, is the apostle who's going to live the longest. He's going to live to roughly the, the end of the first century, right approaching the, the beginning of the second century. So about five or six decades after uh, seeing the cross, John is going to be writing. He's going to be writing the book of Revelation. He's going to be writing the Gospel of John. He's going to be writing 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And to me, 1st John is the, and in 1st John, he never strays far nor long from the idea of love. And so at the end of his life, this man who was called a son of thunder by the Lord himself, is known by an entirely different name. He's known as John the Beloved. Now, this could be simply, this could be for a number of reasons. It could be because those around him truly loved this ancient man because he was such a good man and a good leader. 
I think that's part of it. Part of it can be that during the earthly ministry of Jesus, he was very close with Jesus as he called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, beloved, dearly loved. But I think it has another meaning. And I think beloved in this sense, and again, this is just me, I may be wrong, but I think it carries with it part of the idea of John, the one of love. Because he just never strayed far nor long from the idea of love. And something changed in the life of John. And that's what I want to go at. What changed him from a son of thunder to the beloved? And I think I have the answer to that. Of all the male disciples of Jesus, only John, John and only John, was there at the cross close enough to really take it in. Because remember, Jesus spoke to him from the cross when he gave Mary into John's care. He said, he said son, behold your mother, woman, behold your son. So John was there. He was close enough to see everything as it transpired. The blood, the pain, the agony, to hear everything that Jesus said, to hear the crowd. He was there experiencing it, all of it. And as he's watching this, he's, he knows by this time Jesus is fully God and fully man, that this is the eternal son. And this is, this is the eternal son with all the power of God at his disposal, hanging upon a cross to purchase forgiveness for the sins of the world. He recognizes from his days in Sunday school, because he's a Jew and they had Saturday, or Saturday school, not Sunday school, because he's gone to synagogue. He recognizes this is the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53 paying the price for the sins of the world. And he realizes that Jesus is dying for the sins of the world. He realizes that it's not, he's not being held to the cross by nails. Physically he is, of course. But he's God. He's there because he decided to be there, because he wants to be there. The Romans aren't keeping him on the cross, although they share culpability. The Jewish leaders aren't holding them there, although they share culpability for the cross. The crowd isn't holding them there, although they share culpability. The sins of the world are holding him there, and his love for the lost of the world is holding him there. And I think John realizes as he sees this transpiring right in front of him that Jesus is dying for the sins of the world, but included within the sins of the world are the sins of John. And if the sins of John are included in what Jesus is dying for, technically, it is John who is putting him to death. John, as much as anybody, is responsible for the death of Christ, and he's watching him die right in front of him. And yet, as he does so, he hears, <laughs> he hears those words of Christ who says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Now, where was Jesus looking when he said that? Was he... Glancing at his Roman executioners? Probably. Was he glancing at the Jewish leaders? Most likely. At the crowds who were berating him and yelling? Probably. I also have a sneaky suspicion. He stole a glance at John. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. But John would hear it a little bit differently. Father, forgive him, because he does not know what he is doing. And you see, this is love. When John wrote in the other John 3.16, 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. This is how we know what agape is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. He was thinking of the cross and nothing else. That is the defining issue of the cross. In heaven's dictionary, look, agape was a word in the Greek language for centuries, but it's 
best meaning, its number one meaning in heaven's dictionary of Greek was left blank until the cross was accomplished. And now the heavenly dictionary of Greek says, see the cross when you look at love, when you look at agape. Because that's where love was defined. And I can guarantee you that wasn't an ooey-gooey, mushy, emotional feeling for me or for you. Jesus was in severe pain. He was being separated from his father because of the sin that he became. He who was holy became sin for us and bore that judgment. There was no emotion there. It was pain. It was suffering. And so what the cross is or what love is is ultimately this. It's an unflinching commitment to the welfare of another despite the cost to oneself. That is agape as defined on the cross. And I believe when John saw that, when he saw that, when he heard that, I think at that place and at that time, the son of thunder died and the beloved was born. And never, ever again would he stray far nor long from the issue of love. That's why when we put on love as the outer garment, it binds all of these things together. And oh, a church can be a fighting unit like none other. What is love? It is an unflinching commitment to the welfare of another despite the cost to oneself. By the way, when I do marital counseling, that's almost the entirety of my marital counseling. I used to do a lot more marital counseling, but folks getting married are kind of young and and you know they're thinking about stuff but it's not necessarily all this stuff that I'm throwing into the premarital counseling so I let all of that stuff go by there's only a couple things I talk on but one of the things I'm sure I make sure that they understand when they leave me is that they I tell them the story of love through the eyes of John and the death the death of the son of thunder and the birth of the beloved if two people in a marriage are crossing one another, they're viewing one another, they're loving one another with the love of the cross, that's going to be a marriage that's going to survive and going to even thrive. It's going to be a beautiful one. And guess what? A fighting unit, a church such as Bethel Bible White House filled with people crossing one another is going to be hard to beat. Let's pray. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.